Good morning, Central. Took a little second. <laughs> it's so good to see you guys on this bright and early Sunday morning. So most of you guys might know who I am, but if you don't, my name is Quinn Goosen, and I am in grade 12. And today, I have, this summer, I have the amazing privilege of being an intern at the church, and I also have the amazing privilege of speaking with you guys today. And so for today, I get to share with you an amazing story that's found in the Old Testament. And if you haven't been with us over the past couple of weeks, we've been going through a series that we're calling the Book of Eli, which is, which is a series where we're looking at the incredible story of the prophet of Elijah, which can, which can be found in 1 Kings. Now, Elijah was a prophet who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Ahab. And it's important to note that over the next few weeks, you're going to keep hearing these names pop up as they're some of the key players that are going to unfold in our passage today and continue in the next couple of weeks. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at this epic smackdown that's going to happen between Elijah, where he faces King Ahab, and ultimately God is going to go toe-to-toe with the fake god of Baal and ultimately show that he is far more powerful than the fake gods of our world. And so now it's really important to note that as we jump into our story today, that one of the things we have to do is take a couple minutes to step back and set up this epic fight. And to do that, we need to understand the context of our story, because if we don't, we're going to miss out on how incredible this story really is. And so our story starts today in 1 Kings 16, 29, where we're told that this evil guy named Ahab inherits the throne of northern kingdom of Israel. And what we know about King Ahab is that he was a horrible guy, and it says that King Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any other king. And so this guy was not someone that you wanted to mess with, because he cared about one thing, and that was being the king and being number one. Now, the reason why the Bible says that Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord was together with his wife Jezebel, they led the northern kingdom of Israel away from the worship of Yahweh. You see, Jezebel was a Canaanite, and the Canaanites were essentially an enemy of God, and she was the daughter of a Canaanite king, and as the daughter of the king, she was given the title of priestess of Baal, which meant that her number one job was to promote the worship of Baal and to eliminate any other rival gods. And let me tell you, together, this couple, they did horrendous things to accomplish this. They destroyed temples, they killed priests, they executed prophets, they were violent and vengeful, and they forced people to bow down to Baal, who is known as the god of fertility and the god of weather, or specifically rainstorms and fire. But, but our story doesn't end there. As we jump forward to 1 Kings 17, we read that there is a contender to King Ahab, and he enters a story, and his name is Elijah, which means Yahweh is my God. And what we're told is that Elijah pronounces judgment on the land and against the wicked king. And this is what Elijah says. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. And sure enough, just as Elijah pronounces this judgment on the land, God stays true to his judgment, and we're told that an extreme famine and drought came across the land. And so you must know that this was a drought that parched the land, and it brought extreme famine, and it also withered anything that lived, and the sun beat down day after day. And it was at this time that Elijah becomes public enemy number one, And because of that, we're told that he runs away from the wrath of Ahab and his queen. And what we're told in the later verses is that Ahab desperately wants to find Elijah. We're told in chapter 18, verse 10, that there was not a single place that wasn't searched and that Ahab had looked everywhere for Elijah as he was the one who was responsible for the famine in their eyes. 
And after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go and show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the land. Elijah has now gone out to find Ahab where he runs into this guy Obadiah as Obadiah himself is going out to find Elijah. And some things to note about Obadiah is that he was a man who loved and feared the Lord, but he was also a man who held responsibility in Ahab's house. And when Elijah meets Obadiah, he sort of sends him back as a messenger to set the stage and prepare Ahab for Elijah's return. And then in verse 11, it says, so Elijah says to Ahab, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And so you see, the stage is being set here for this amazing battle royale. And after three long years of suffering, three long years of famine, and three long years of hiding from his enemy, God sends Elijah and essentially says, it's time to confront the king. Get ready, let's go. And so what we see in our text is in verse 17, two people who despise each other, they hate each other, they approach each other, and right away start fighting or bickering at each other. And what our text says is, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Right off the bat, King Ahab starts blaming Elijah, but Elijah's quick to turn it around on him. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. What Elijah is doing here is he's reminding King Ahab of the words of Exodus 20, verse 3, and Deuteronomy 5, 6, which tells us that you shall have no other gods before me. And you see, this here is a big problem. And this is the reason why there has been a drought in the land, but King Ahab, he doesn't understand and he doesn't get it. And so Elijah essentially continues and tells him to fill the stands. Now therefore send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And it's really important to note that Mount Carmel was known as the holy mountain and it was chosen as a long center of idol worship. And it was for this reason that Elijah chose this mountain range as a place to challenge the priests of these false gods and show the people once and for all who is the true and real God. And what we're gonna see today is that our idols don't satisfy us. They don't deliver us from the droughts of our lives, but that only God can satisfy us. That He is the only one who will ultimately show up in our time of need. And so the first part I wanna highlight in our text is that God despises half-hearted worship. And starting with verse 21, it says, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And so to start, everyone is standing there waiting for the challenge to start. And what do they get? They get Elijah standing there with them with one final question where he essentially asks them, how long will you guys be on the fence about this? You have to choose whether God is true and then follow him only or whether Baal is true and then follow him. But you have to make a choice. And then Elijah is met with this silence. And, and I think the silence is for two reasons. And I think the first reason is that if the prophets or the Israelites confess that God is Lord, there's a possibility that Ahab will kill them as that is what happened when Ahab and Jezebel came into power. But, but I think there's a better reason why. 
I think the reason why Elijah's met with this silence is because they're just simply floating along and they're wandering around and just following anything that catches their eye. And in this case, it's Baal. It is an idol and it is something that they have put their hope and trust in. So that is what we call idolatry. And what Colossians 3.5 says, it talks a lot about idolatry and it says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so what this verse is really telling us is that of all these things, we're called to put them to death as this is what idolatry is. And so this verse lists awesome things about what idolatry is, but I think also when it comes down to it, it is anything that we replace or it is anything that we put as priority over God or our relationship with him. And so something that we're supposed to do is to get away from idols and not let them have any place in our lives. And so now you look at Exodus 20 verse four where it says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And what both of these verses are telling us is that we are not to have anything that takes the place of God. But I think something also important to note is that our idols can really be anything. And as I said before, it's our idols that are anything that go above God and it's something that we fix our eyes on rather than God. And it can be anything from money, sex, drugs, our kids, sports, popularity, getting a promotion at work, or even just work itself. Or it can be really anything that gives us more joy in life or anything that stops us from putting God first. And so we need to choose. Is it God or is it the idol? But we cannot have both. And so I know for me that as a 16-year-old kid, I have idols of my own. So one of them for me can be sports. I love anything from soccer to basketball, biking, and many other things. Something that I've seen myself do is place those things in such a high standard that I'm just practicing, playing, and all those things just to get better and better and to make the basketball team or whatever it is that I forget to include God in my day. So that can become an idol. And although I see idols in my life, I also see the idols in other people's lives as well. And I think a great place to look is high school. So first off, I go to a school called GW Graham, and last year was my first year there. And the year before that, I had previously gone to a private Christian school called High Road Academy, where I'd gone there from kindergarten to grade 10, and then I switched schools. So there was a big difference, and even just looking at this new and huge school, some of the kids, they worship things at school. You can see it in the hallways. They worship things like, like their schooling. They worship their, their grades and how they're doing in class. And so they put so much time and effort into their, into their schooling to have the best grades. And so that can be an idol in of itself. Or the athletic kids who want to just are in the gym all day or they're practicing, con- constantly getting better. Or the people who want to be in a relationship with someone. So they prioritize that as they think it'll make them have status or even just being popular, as again, that makes them feel good about themselves. And these are all idols, and I've seen them all just by walking around the school. And I think the same can go for us. I think that a lot of time, the young adults who are going through school, we can see money and schooling be big idols. 
we can see how they're getting so caught up in how they're doing in school and if they'll be able to afford next year's tuition. And so you keep working or you keep studying so you can afford school and you miss your time to connect with believers and you don't spend time in the word or you don't invest in the Christian community around you. Or even for the people who have kids. I think sometimes parents can get so caught up in their kids and how they're doing in school or at home or in sports or even just get so caught up in their lives in general that when they have an event on Sunday that you don't think twice about saying no because you want your kid to succeed in everything that they're doing. And so you miss church and you miss the fellowship with your community and you put your faith on the back burner because your kids are priority number one. And you think that how they're doing and how they're performing is more important than their spiritual lives as well as yours. And lastly, I want to talk about if for someone who's maybe saving for retirement and so they don't think that they'll have enough money to sustain themselves once they reach retirement. And so what do they do? They keep working. They keep, they work overtime. They take extra shifts and all these things and then they miss out on their time with God. They don't press into the Bible or go to church and all these things because they're worried about if they'll have enough money to retire. And I'm going to talk about that piece about if they'll have enough in a little bit. But I also want to talk about people who might already be retired. And you have a lot of time on your hands and you're just sitting around visiting, watching TV, reading. And let me tell you, I wish I could do those things a lot more often. But those aren't bad things. But you can get so caught up in your free time and you feel like you have no responsibility that you just don't put it as a priority. And that can block off your relationship with God. And so as I lift, list off some of those things, I, I would just want to say that we're all, all of us are prone to idolatry. We all worship things that aren't God, and it doesn't take long to fall into that. But I also want to say that when you have an idol in your life, you are saying that God doesn't sustain you, and you don't think that he's doing enough in your life. And that is why we see in Exodus 32 that the Israelites made a golden calf that it's where we see the Israelites again falling to something that isn't God. And so I think we need to see a, a little bit of a theme here that even in Exodus now we see in 1 Kings that the Israelites are seemingly floating along and not caring about what, has God, what God has done for them, but rather they're going to idols and thinking that they will be fulfilled. And then again, I want to point out verse 21 where it says, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And so Elijah has seen what the Israelites are doing. He is calling them out on it and he is saying, no. You can't love God and Baal. You have to choose. And you have to choose, but you have to go all in with it. And Revelation 3, 15 to 17 says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so what this verse tells us is that God sees what we're doing, and he sees who and what we worship and how he lives our lives. And so if you are on the fence or lukewarm, warm, you don't have any place in God's kingdom. But the last part also tells us that we really think we can do everything. 
but in reality, we really can't. So that is where we need to find God, ask for help, dive into him, and not live a life that follows the idols in our lives, but one that is fixed on God, that is a life that is fixated on him and who he is, and then allowing us, allowing him to use us. But to do that, we must give it all to him. And so now I wanna move on to my next point that says, when our idols fail us, we always try harder. But before we jump into that, I wanna look at the task at hand. So what's gonna happen is that the people are gonna build up an altar where they're going to place a calf on it, and they're gonna call to either Baal or Yahweh and call for fire to come down. And so I wanna point out in verse 25 where it says, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And what sticks out to me in this part is that the, Elijah wanted the prophets to go first, and he wanted them to call upon their God, and he wanted to see how it all played out. And then we get in verse 26 to 29 where it says, and they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us but there was no voice, no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made and Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. He is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention. And so this is where we see the prophets of Baal press into their idols. We see how much they want Baal to answer, but yet they are given nothing. And I think something to note there is that as the prophets of Baal were worshiping, is that Baal was meant to be the sky god and the god of fire. And so surely, if Baal was the god of fire, he must be able to bring down fire, right? But nothing had happened. And so what do they do? They cried out to Baal, and when nothing still happened and their god did not answer them, they pressed in even more. They started cutting themselves with swords and lances as that was a form of worship towards Baal and crying out to their idol and their god. And so that still doesn't work. And what do we see? We see Elijah mocking them. We see Elijah look at all the prophets and he taunts them. He tells Baal, he tells them that Baal might be in the bathroom where he is sleeping, or maybe he's just gone on a vacation. And what Baal is, what Elijah is essentially saying is that if your God is real, he would be able to do these things, but he isn't. You were worshiping an idol, something that is not God and something that holds no real power. And then we get to verse 29 where it tells us there was no voice, and that no one had answered and no one paid attention. And so I want you to hear this part. No one heard them. The prophets who had cut themselves, cried out to their God and given everything that they had to Baal for a whole day. And what did they receive? Nothing. They didn't get a single flame or spark or anything. And this is what I want you guys to hear. The more that you press into your idols or the more you give into what you think is right, the less they will help you. 
and the more it will leave you feeling empty and broken. And I think this is something that we can do a lot of today. We see things in our lives that we think will help us, and we run to them, and we think they'll help, but in reality, they don't. They always leave us broken, they leave us empty, or they leave us still wanting more, and then thinking that if we do have more, that is when we will be satisfied. But it never does. There's a thought of, if I just have a little bit more money, then I'll be satisfied. Or if I have a couple more followers on social media, then I'll be happy. But the more you think like that, the more you live a life like that, and the quicker you'll figure out that you'll never be satisfied. If you keep lusting over something that isn't good, but you think it is, you'll be let down. Or again, if it's your status on social media, you'll be let down as someone will always have more followers than you or be more popular. And so now I want to share with you a time when I had a little hit mishap of my own and how I tried something and it failed me. And so I tried again and it still failed me and I was left with nothing good. And so it was a couple of years ago when it was just me and my two brothers at home. And so I, I'm the oldest and so it was time for me to make lunch. And I decided that I would make some craft dinner. So I read the instructions, but clearly I didn't read them well enough. And so the first thing I do is I fill up the pot with water and I turn it on and I turn it on and I turn the stove on. And I didn't heat up the water, which I guess clearly was my first mistake that I made. And right away I put in the noodles. So I put three boxes of cold noodles into the pot of cold water, and I look at the instructions and I don't see anything but the cheese sauce. So what do I do? Well, I dump three packets of cheese sauce into the cold water. And let me tell you, it made a big mountain of cheese sauce right on the top, like probably that big. So I stir it in, not thinking of anything else. And then my youngest brother, who's four years younger than me, comes to me and he tells me that I did it wrong. I'm like, oh, dang it, I sure did. <laughs> But I, I kept cooking it and figured it would all mix out well. And then seven or eight minutes go by and I strain the noodles and they're the same size, first of all, because of the cold water. And they're still the same color because the cheese sauce has gone down the drain with the water. <laughs> and so what do I do then? I fill up the pot one more time and I use the same noodles and I try to cook it again. And seven or eight minutes go by again and I dump it out and nothing changes. So I scrapped that idea. I was done with it. And I made some tomato soup for me and my brothers. And so you guys might be wondering why I'm telling you this story. And I think the reason is because just like I did, when something didn't work, we still tend to go back to the same thing, hoping for a different outcome while still doing the same, same thing. And I think we do this with our idols all the time. One that I want to point out is sex or pornography. And I think something that we do is when our lives get tough, or maybe even when our marriages get in rocky times, we can turn to things like pornography or even go to the extreme of extramarital affairs. And we go, we just keep going back to it. We know it's not good, but we think it will help us, it will make us feel better. But does it? No, it doesn't. Instead, it leaves us feeling broken, we feel horrible, hurt, and guilty. But what do we do? We still go back to our addictions of porn, hoping it will serve us and fill the void we think we need saving from. But then it doesn't. And then from there, we keep going back to it 
and over and over again. And just like my craft dinner fail, we try and try and it doesn't work and we're not satisfied. But rather, we're hurt and broken. And so in that time of need, we need to turn to God and look for help and ask him to help us and forgive us. And then we need to turn away from our idol or addiction of always wanting more. And all of these things that we go to and the addictions that we have in our life, they're all stopping us from the experience that God has in store for us. We're placing a barrier in front of us that cuts us off from what God really wants for us. And we very clearly know that God doesn't want these things for us. He wants us to flee from things like sexual immorality and other sexual sins or any sin in general. But we are called and we are called to flee from sexual immorality because firstly, we're not honoring God with our bodies. And then we're also, not placing our, we're also placing our thoughts and desires above God. And so when we look to 1 Corinthians 6.18, it says, flee from sexual immorality. Every person's sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or even Colossians 3.5 again, where it says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so both of these verses tell us right away to flee from our sexual impurities. And in Colossians, it's the first thing noted. And so that's something we must not take lightly. We must put our sexual sins as in, when they're idols and throw them to the ground and say that our sin has no more and no place in our lives. And saying that this thing that we've been holding so highly to such a high standard doesn't belong anymore. But ultimately, our sin and our sexual desire and all of that, it won't serve us. It won't fulfill you or make you feel any better about yourselves. But when you trust in God and you look to him and ask for help and cry out to him, that is when he fulfills us, he helps us, and he ultimately satisfies us. And now thirdly, I wanna talk about how our idols will always fail us, but how God will not. And as we look to verses 30 to 35, where it says, Elijah said to all his people, come near to me. And the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did the third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And so here it starts with Elijah bringing everyone in close and getting, and getting them ready for what's about to come. But then we see Elijah rebuild the altar that was set up for the worship of Yahweh, which was torn down by Ahab and Jezebel when they made the Baal the state of worship. Now Elijah has rebuilt it. He has set up 12 stones to represent the tribes of the sons of Jacob. And we, then we see how Elijah is about to put down two sayas of seed, which would have been 14 liters around the altar of water. 
Then it tells us that they go and fill four jars down at the bottom of the mountain. And keep in mind, these weren't tiny little jars. They would have been huge. They would have been so big. And it tells them that they need to pour the water on the altar. So the altar is drenched in water, but so is the calf. But then Elijah, he tells them to go and grab water two more times to make sure that everything is against him, that there is no way that Elijah is doing this by his own power, that he is rigging this. And so after the altar is drenched and nothing seems to be in the favor of Elijah, he gets down and he prays. And in verse 36, it says, and at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, that you have turned their hearts back. And so what we see here is Elijah is bringing everyone in close. It's at that time that Elijah prays. He prays a prayer of faith, and we see the full trust that Elijah has towards God. Something that we see is Elijah has done everything that God has told him and commanded him to do, from going and telling King Ahab that there's going to be a drought on the land, and then there was a drought. And now we see Elijah has come to King Ahab, and he challenges him to a battle of the gods to see which is real. And these are two things that Elijah has done in God's name. So now we see Elijah to ask for fire to come down from heaven. And I think we need to note here the difference between Baal worship and Elijah's prayer. The Baal prophets had to do everything in their power to hopefully catch Baal's attention. But Elijah had to pray one prayer and trust in what God was going to do. And so this is very important. When we cry out to God, he hears us. We don't have to scream in agony or cut ourselves or anything. We just call it to God and he hears us. And 1 Peter 3.12 tells us that God's eyes are on the righteous and his ears are listening to our prayers. So I wanna tell you that when we call and ask to God for help or when we cry out in pain or we don't even know what's going on, God is there with us. He sees everything and he hears everything. And that is something that we see in Elijah. We see how he is called out to God and then he is answered. Verse 38 to 39 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And so now this is kind of the climax of our story and the part that we've all been waiting for, where God sends down fire from heaven. We see that Baal has been defeated and that the idols that they had were not going to serve them anymore. Baal was defeated right in front of them, and then, only then, do the Israelites believe. But it was a little too late for that. In verse 40, it says, And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. And so we see that the Israelites and all the prophets of Baal were brought down to the brook, and this is when they were killed. And so this might seem a little harsh, but I think when you look at it, Baal was defeated, he was destroyed, and King Ahab had lost the challenge. And so because they lost, like any challenge, there was a punishment that they had to pay. 
And so Deuteronomy 12, 2-4 says, You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. And that is exactly what happens. The people are brought down to the sea where they are killed. And I know this might still seem a little bit more on the harsh side, but when you think of it as someone who has a cancer in them, and they go to the doctor, and the doctor has two, they have two options. They can either remove some of the cancer cells, or they can remove it completely and get it all. So what do they do? They remove the whole entire problem. They remove it all so that there's no trace. That is the same thing here. They need to remove the whole entire problem and get rid of it, because if they don't, then the same idol worship is going to come back just as quickly. And I think here we need to note again that God takes down our idols. God is bigger than our social status. He's bigger than our desire for that job promotion. He is greater than all of that. That when we don't think we have enough followers on our social media or when our addictions don't fill us, fulfill us anymore, that God is ultimately bigger than that. It is in that time that we need to look to him and say, Lord, this is bigger than me. I can't do this on my own. It's at the weakest points in our lives that we can reach out and ask God to help us to get away from our idols. And he will help us, and he will respond. And finally, I want to look at sort of the end of the passage where Elijah firstly goes to Ahab and tells him that rain is coming, and then he goes up to Mount Carmel again, and he prays. In verse 41, it says, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to the servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariots and go down, lest the rain stop you. And so here we see Elijah goes up to Ahab, and as I just mentioned, as I just mentioned, and then Elijah goes up to Mount Carmel, where he has gone up there to pray. And his servant is with them, and he doesn't see any rain. And the servant is told by Elijah to go down to the sea seven times. And on the seventh time, he sees rain. And I think there's something so amazing about this last part, and I think there's sort of two key parts that we can take out of these last couple of verses. And the first is that Elijah stayed humble. He could have gone up to King Ahab and shoved it all in his face and told him, look what I did, look what I have done, I have conquered Baal. But instead, he goes up to Mount Carmel and he prays. He goes up to Mount Carmel and he prays with humility. And the other part that we can see is that the servant obeyed as well. The servant might not have seen it at first, but after seven times, he finally understood and saw what God was doing. And at that time, rain came. There was so much rain that King Ahab probably wasn't going to be able to travel. And so I want to tell you that when God takes down our idols, and that in times where God has delivered us, we need to stay humble and give it to him 
and give thanks. 1 Peter 5.5 tells us to clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I think in times where we have seen God either work in our lives or other people's lives, we need to take a step back and not let it get to us, which I know for me can be hard as well. And I think the second part is that we need to take from this is that we need to obey and trust in God, which he says is good and is true. And we also need to obey and let God help us and allow him into our lives and allow him to take down his idols and then be thankful and praise God for what he has done. And so now I want to quickly remind you of what I said at the beginning when I said idols don't satisfy us and that they don't deliver us from the droughts of our lives and that only God can satisfy us and he is ultimately the only one who will show up in our time of need. And I think the last part about how God is the only one who satisfies, he's the only one who will show up is very true and evident in the gospel. And I think Jesus himself was a perfect example of this. Jesus came down to earth when the Roman Empire was at its height, and when he was needed most. Jesus came and he saw the idols that the Pharisees had in their lives, and he rebuked them and told them that they can't live a life that is purely of the law anymore. Jesus came and told them they were making the law an idol in their life. And we see how Jesus points this out to them, and yet they don't want to listen or have any part in it. And yet we see that because Jesus was doing these things that the Pharisees didn't like and they didn't go accustomed to their law, that is why they killed him. But friends, you see, this is why Jesus came. He came to tell us that our sins, our idols, and everything that we put our hope in has no place anymore. And Jesus came and he demonstrated that with his death and resurrection. He died and rose again and he has satisfied us. He's done it all on the cross. And so if Jesus loves us, he knows us, and he wants what's best for us, then how much more should we give him the power and glory over all of our earthly things? Well, he deserves a lot more than all of the things that we want on this earth. He deserves it all. So with that, I think it's very important to take a look at our own lives and see where we have done wrong, where we have made idols of our own, but then not stopping there. I think that when you look to your life and you see where you have placed your hope and trust in, we need to clearly see and take a look at how they have served us. Because in reality, our idols, they don't serve us in the long run. But then with that, pray to God and pray to him that he would help us, he would strengthen us, and he would give us strength to fight back against our idols. But when you pray, I want you to pray as a prayer of faith. Pray and have faith that God will show up because he does work in our lives. And when we give it to him and allow him to really work, that is when he shows up and how much he will show us that our idols really don't fulfill, but he is really the only one who does. And so as we go, and as I finish up, I wanna ask you this question. How have the idols in your life shaped you and how much have they led your life? Does God lead your every step and every move that you make? Or is it the things of this world and the things that catch your eye? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this amazing passage. Thank you for this wonderful day that we can be here to gather. Thank you that we can just all come together and I pray that we can learn something 
and that I pray that we would all know that you extend grace and love to all of us. And I pray that as we go, that we would look at ourselves and repent and think about how we might not have put you first. Pray that we would all look to you and that we would ask for help, for forgiveness, and then trust in your word. I thank you for your word and for the amazing opportunity that we have to gather here today. In your name, amen.